Should have gotten a handout this evening. If you didn't, they are on the back table in the lobby. Um, I was reminded that when covering a lot of different passages, it's helpful to have some of the references written out. So appreciate that reminder, and uh, I think it's, it's helpful for the topic that we'll be looking at this evening. As we consider this next topic regarding evangelism, I think it'd be helpful for us to take a moment and go back and review what we've looked at so far. We started out looking at some of the excuses that we make for not sharing the gospel, for not doing evangelism. And there's a variety of those excuses, but essentially the answer to all of them is having the proper motivation, which is if Christ died for us, how can we do anything else except to live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf? And then after that, we looked at our approach to sharing the gospel. And one of the key ideas from that evening's look at that subject is that there are many starting points from which we can share the one message that is true about Christ. And we have to be wise about what those starting points are depending on the person that we're talking to, their religious background, their level of knowledge of the Bible, and a number of factors along those lines. And then last week, we looked at the three responses people typically have to hearing the gospel. The first is that they reject it. The second is that they're curious about it. And then the third is that they accept it. And we thought about how each of those responses requires a different strategy on our part to properly respond on our part to those responses to the gospel. Tonight, I want us to consider the next steps. Last week, we talked about someone who accepts the gospel as being the goal, the hopeful response that we will see from some that we share the gospel with. What takes place after someone receives the gospel? The best picture that I think I can give you is that of growing up. You start off as a baby, then you become a young person, whether that be a toddler or an elementary student or a high schooler. And then at some point after that, hopefully we all mature enough to become adults, right? And while it's possible to get old without getting wiser, hopefully the trend is that as we grow older, we are also gaining wisdom and not just gaining it for ourselves, but also gaining a desire and a willingness to share truth with other people. And along those same lines, God wants us to mature once we trust Christ. This is something that we are called to do collectively as a church body, according to Ephesians 4.15, which says this, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. The picture that I think Paul has in mind, the picture that I certainly have in mind when I read this passage, is when you look at an infant, their heads are disproportionately large for their bodies. As they grow, as they mature, their body begins to match their head. Christ is our head. He's perfect. He doesn't need to change and grow, but we have to mature to match what it is that Christ wants us to be. And so we're doing that all together. This is also something that's happening individually, according to 1 Peter 2.2. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now here, the idea of being babies is not used negatively. It's just saying to the degree that a baby desires milk to survive, we should desire God's word. And yet I think that we'll see in our next passage that we shouldn't be content to stay at that level of being a baby, spiritually speaking. And that passage 
is found in Hebrews. And so you're welcome to turn there if you'd like. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11 through 14. And it says this, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, sometimes we look at this passage and we tend to think that the point of this is that someone who doesn't know much about truth has to keep being reminded of the basics of the faith and someone who knows a lot of truth is the person who's spiritually mature. But look at this passage and see what the marks of maturity are. The marks of maturity are verse 12, you ought to be teachers, and verse 14, you ought to have your senses trained to discern good and evil. So the marks of maturity are not necessarily just increased knowledge. The marks of maturity are discernment and being able to teach truth to other people. And so just to review, there's three stages, infant, youth, and adult. There's also different rates of growth transitioning between these stages. Uh, just like in our earthly lives, sometimes uh, if you look at different kids, they have all of these, uh, like in adolescent psychology, they have all of these models for at what point a child typically does this, whether it be walking or all of these other sorts of things. And everyone's a little bit different. Sometimes people do things out of order. And that's part of life in, in the development of children. That's part of life in the development of people in the church towards spiritual maturity. The important thing is that growth is happening, not that it happens exactly the same for everyone. And then we have to recognize that we need to have a correct standard to evaluate. Training others in the word and spiritual discernment, not just more knowledge. And there's a number of models that people use to describe uh, growing to spiritual maturity. But I think that this image of, that parallels our own growth and development as individual human beings is probably the simplest to understand and I think parallels most, most closely what we see in Scripture. So let's start with this first stage, that of being an infant. Sometimes we look down on baby Christians. Baby Christians are certainly Christians. Like human babies, they make messes. They are selfish. They don't think ne much necessarily about everyone else. But the important thing is they are still alive. They have life. They're just in the initial stages of it, but they are alive. I think this is important when we look at something like uh, the epistles that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church because he has a lot of harsh words for them at various points. And so sometimes people will say, wow, I don't want to be like the Corinthian church. And there's a lot of things that they did that we shouldn't want to copy. And yet... Paul starts out his epistle by saying, I'm confident that you are believers. He doesn't start out saying, get saved. He starts out saying, you are saved, now live like it. And so I think that's an important reminder that there is this stage of infancy. Connected with this, and regarding our understanding of sanctification, 
Sometimes people will look at what Paul talks to the Corinthian church and say, well, they're behaving in a fleshly or an immature way. And they'll say, all right, so there's the stage you trust Christ, and then you live in a fleshly or an immature way, and then there's some sort of transforming spiritual experience, and then all of a sudden you're mature. And you start obeying and following God. But the reality is, it's not like a zap, and now you're up here on this higher plane of following God. It's more like a series of stair steps on which sometimes we fall down and have to climb back up the stair steps. There is a upward trend of being more and more like Christ, but it's not an immediate thing. There is no secret formula, so to speak. So how do we know if we are at least in this infant stage of following Christ? I think the test is this. Have I received the gospel? We probably should ask, what is the gospel? Christ lived, Christ died, Christ was buried, raised, ascended, returning. We could certainly add to this that he was foretold, that he was born, that he will reign and rule. We could add a whole bunch of other verbs to this list, but the gospel at its core is truth about Jesus Christ, who he is, what he has done. On the basis of these truths, we have to trust in Jesus alone to save us from our sins. And so how do I know if I've received the gospel? John gives us in, the gospel, in his epistle of 1 John various tests. One of these tests to see if you are saved is who is the object of your faith? Is the object of your faith Jesus? Because a lot of times the test that we give ourselves is, did I pray a prayer? Did I have physical motion and go forward in church? Did I? Something along those lines. And those things are important, particularly a verbal um, uh, confession that I'm trusting Christ. That's good. That's important. There's a point at which it happens. But the thing that John emphasizes is what or who, I should say, is it that you're currently believing in? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Someone else. Secondly, there needs to be a right love for God and for other people. We see this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, where it talks about the fact that we need to have love for God and that love for God is connected with love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't have that love, we should examine ourselves and say, am I genuinely trusting in God? Am I living for God? Because Jesus said, this is how all people will know that you're really following me, if you have love one for another. How do we know if we love God, if we obey him? How do we have, know if we have love for one another, if we humbly serve and uh, instead of behaving selfishly toward each other, we show kindness and do what is best for others? And then thirdly, there needs to be a right attitude, particularly towards sin. Do we hate sin or do we love sin? 1 John 1, 5 through 10 goes into this in some detail. And we read that at first glance and we think it says, if you ever sin, you don't belong to God. But the point there is, if you sin and it doesn't bother you and it's a habit of it and you never turn away from it, there's something wrong. Your profession of faith that I am a Christian, if you love sin, you need to re-examine that. And so there are these three tests. How do I know if I've received the gospel? I'm believing in the right person, Jesus. He's the object of my faith. I have the right sort of love toward God and other people. Not perfect, but increasing. And I have the right sort of attitude towards sin. I'm turning away from it. I'm rejecting it. I'm putting on righteousness. What's the next step to move out of this stage of being an infant to being at least a youth 
in terms of following Christ. The next step, I think, is this. You have to start to obey. Now, certainly we could speak of believing in the gospel as a type of obedience, not that we obey in order to be saved, but the act itself through God's power is us finally obeying what he's commanded us to do. But what I'm talking about is what comes immediately after that belief. We see precedent in the New Testament that we are to get baptized. Several truths here about baptism. Baptism is in water by immersion. I think Acts 8 gives us a good example of that. The Ethiopian uh, eunuch, here's the gospel from Philip. He says, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? They go down into the water. They come up out of the water. They is baptized. And that leads to the next point, which is to publicly identify as a follower of Christ. This doesn't have to be a large gathering. It was potentially just Philip, the Ethiopian, and the chariot driver. Why do I say there was a chariot driver? Because you can't read a scroll and drive a chariot at the same time. Um, so it doesn't have to be a large gathering. And so the people will say, well, unless you get baptized in a river or a creek or somewhere like that, and you invite people from the community to watch, it's not genuinely fulfilling what it's supposed to accomplish. The point is that you're publicly identifying with Christ. It's not the size of the crowd. It's the fact that you're making known to other people that you are following Christ. And this baptism also is a picture of our connection with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Paul makes this point in Romans 6. If you have been connected with Christ's death, you've died to sin. If you've been connected with his life, you are raised to live in righteousness. So the first step of obedience to transition out of this being spiritually a baby to growing up in Christ is get baptized. Another step is to join a church. Now, I think we recognize that in the New Testament, it doesn't give a specific process for joining a church. Every church does this slightly differently. The main thing that is important is the fact of being added to an assembly. We see this in Acts 2.41, that those who believed were added, about 3,000. And then Acts 4.4, we saw this morning that there were another 5,000 that were recognized to be a part of the church. Some churches do this more formally. Some churches do this less formally. The important thing is the second point there, marking who is in versus who is out. Why is that important? Because you can't exercise church discipline on someone that you don't know if they're actually a part of your church or not. And so, again, it doesn't have to be a super formal thing, but there has to be some awareness of this person is part of our assembly, this person is not part of our assembly, because in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves, and that makes only sense in the context of here's us, here's people outside of us, and how can we obey his admonition to not try to solve all of the evil that's in the world, but to deal with the evil that's among ourselves if we don't know which is which. And so that's why church membership, at least a couple of reasons why church membership is so important. There's other things that we could certainly say on that subject along the lines of things like uh, that the church affirms our profession of faith, that the church provides opportunities for us to fellowship and all those sorts of things. We'll get into some of that more as we go on. Not only should we be saved, first of all, obviously, but the first step of obedience after that is being baptized, being added to the church, and then beginning to learn Christ and follow godly examples. There's a number of passages there that refer to those things, but essentially there are 
godly examples that are set before us that we should follow after. And we do this as we practice basic spiritual disciplines. I think that this is something that's important that we begin very early in our Christian lives to know and to love God's word. Now, and this is a tension because at first this is going to sound like laziness and I certainly will acknowledge this is an area that even as a pastor I have room to grow in. But if you think about the early church, they did not have necessarily a written copy of the Bible before them to read and to know. And so sometimes we have emphasized just reading over Scripture at the expense of thinking about what Scripture says. So certainly it is valuable and important for us to read God's Word. Since we have it, we ought to make use of it. But we should never see simply the fact of reading God's Word as a substitute for knowing and thinking about what God's Word said. Because we've all had the experience that we'll read something and then we'll walk away from it, and we can't tell somebody what it is five, ten minutes later, or an hour later, or the next day. And so, I would encourage you certainly to read through large swaths of Scripture, because that helps you see the themes of books, the arguments that the authors are making about who God is and about what He's done. That's important. At the same time, I think it is also very helpful for us to consider smaller portions of Scripture so that we're thinking about the truth, so that it sinks in, so that it doesn't just go immediately out of our minds. The main thing is that we are knowing and loving God's Word. We saw in Acts 2.41 that the people devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. It wasn't just a half-hearted thing. It was something they were committed to doing. Connected with that also is calling on the Lord in prayer. And so I think that it's important for us to recognize that this is both how we come to God, Acts 2.21, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and it is how we maintain our relationship with God. Again, they devoted themselves to prayer in addition to devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine. And so I think that it is so important for us to continue to call on God in prayer, privately, with one another, in a variety of means and, and, and reasons that we pray, we should call on God in prayer. All of these things are, are basic foundational things about the Christian life. As we move on from some of these things, or rather I should say as we build on these things, because we never really move on from them, particularly the point about scripture and prayer, we transition into this stage of being a youth. And I would argue that for a number of people in the church, this ends up being the longest, the stage that they are in for the longest. Rightly or wrongly, it tends to be the one where a lot of people stay. What is the test of whether you've moved on from being a baby in Christ to being a youth in Christ? Have I taken my first steps of obedience? If you've been baptized, if you've joined the church, and if you're starting to uh, devote yourself to God's word and to prayer then I would say that you started to move into this stage of being a youth. If not, then you need to go back. If there's one of those things that you missed, you say, I've been baptized, but I've never joined a church, or I've joined a church in the past, but I've never been baptized, depending on what church you've been connected with in the past, I think that it is important that those things are in place because they're foundational to us moving on in our spiritual lives. What's the next step for the person who is in the category of a youth. 
we have to start to use what we know. This we could describe as sanctification, growing to be more and more like Christ. But again, it is easy for us sometimes to think that knowledge is enough. And knowledge is certainly important. If you don't know something, you can't do it. If I don't know how to build a table, I can't build a table. If I don't know how to fix a car, I can't fix a car. If I don't know how to drive, I shouldn't be driving, just as an example. But somebody can have an intricate knowledge of how to build something and never build it. I thought for a while I wanted to do woodworking, and then I realized it was a lot of work, and so I bought a bunch of books on it, and I have a fair bit of knowledge of some of the things that I read in those books, but I'm not very good at it, and so I don't really do it. So when it comes to woodworking, I'm just a baby in that topic because I don't ever do anything with the knowledge that I have. We have to use what we know. So if we are learning the gospel, then that should lead to sharing the gospel. How do we do this? Well, we can invite others to hear God's word. John 1.41, Peter says to Andrew, We found him. Come and meet him with, res with regard to Jesus. The woman at the well says, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have ever done. And as I was thinking about this this afternoon some more, I think the difference is this. The person in a very early stage of faith can certainly, at the very least, say, here's how God saved me, and they can connect someone that they're trying to bring to Christ with other people who can perhaps explain it in more detail. And so there's this tension. You, can cert you are qualified to share the gospel if you know Christ yourself. But there's also a measure of confidence that comes with doing it more often. So there's certainly nothing wrong with connecting that person that you're trying to bring to Christ, if you're in your early stages of following Christ yourself, to other believers. But we should get to a point where we're also consistently giving God's word ourselves. Romans 10 makes this point. How are they going to hear unless someone goes and tells them? Someone has to go and tell them. And it's not always someone else. It's, it should be us. Connected with this as well would be the idea of supporting missions work. Uh, this can be financially, this can be through prayer as being two of the primary ways that we support missions work. Paul asks for them to pray, for him to have boldness, that he would declare the gospel of God. And so we certainly can and should pray that for our missionaries. Paul also rejoiced in the fact that they provided for his needs. And so we can and should also support and provide for the needs of our missionaries. And that is the sort of work that Paul was doing. And so this is different from training someone to be a missionary or going as a missionary yourself. All of us are called, though, to support our missionaries. Another area, and these are certainly not exhaustive, I'm just trying to give you examples of some of the things that should be taking place as we grow in maturity. As we learn about God, this ought to spur us on to worship God more. What does this look like? We ought to worship God reverently. John 4.24 says we ought to worship God in spirit and in truth. Isaiah 55 talks about God being far above us. Hebrews 12.29 says our God is a consuming fire, and so as we look at truth about God, that ought to shape our response of praise and worship to him and our attitude of how we do it. But just because we're doing it reverently 
doesn't mean that we can't also do it fervently. Mark 12, 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sometimes, in an effort to uphold reverence for God, we have tried to say that our worship for him is mainly a mental exercise. And so we get, we get nervous if we start to get stirred in our souls as we sing a song or as we hear truth from God's word. And while I think that there is certainly excess that is practiced in churches where people throw themselves on the floor and run around the pews and have all sorts of uh, ridiculous displays, sometimes seeing those things, we've come too far over here into sort of a stiff, uh, formal attitude where we, where we don't have an excitement and a joy and a fervency as we worship God. And so we have to guard against both errors. How do we worship God? We worship God with music. Going back to the previous point, this worship takes place in all of life. So sometimes people will say, well, how do you worship God? I worship God in my life. And that's true. We worship God by everything that we do. We ought to cause people to ascribe glory to God, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, pointing other people to God and to his majesty. But we particularly worship God also when we are gathered. We do this by worshiping God with music, as we looked at Colossians 3.16 a while back. We worship God by giving sacrificially, both to meet needs and to support God's work. Uh, Philippians 4.18 refers to how Paul is describing the support that he received from various churches. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 speaks of God's people giving sacrificially to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem when it faced difficulty. As we learn about the church, that ought to lead us to ministering in the church. Again, sometimes people say, I've been baptized and I've joined the church, so as long as I just show up, everything is okay. But God wants us to move beyond just knowing facts about the church to actually doing ministry in the church. How do we minister? We minister using spiritual gifts. These are highlighted for us in 1 Corinthians 12 as well as in several other passages. I would argue that these lists that we see in the Bible are not exhaustive uh, because there is variation between the different lists that we see. I would also argue that every person has at least one gift. Uh, in Ephesians 4, it talks about Christ when he ascends. He gives gifts to men. God gives gifts of people, and God give, gives gifts, abilities, skills for us to use in service to him. How do we know what they are? There's been um, uh, different points in the past when people have said, the way that you discover your spiritual gift is by taking a test, and that test will tell you what your spiritual gift is, and that's the one thing that you do. While there is some value in looking at it systematically or objectively, I would argue that the way that you find your spiritual gifts most effectively is to start doing ministry in the church. You say, I don't know what I'm good at. Find something to do. And even if you're not the best at it, it will still be an opportunity for you to serve. There are some things that God has called all of us to do. If there's trash on the floor, I don't know that there's someone that necessarily has a spiritual gift of picking up trash off the floor. But if nobody does it, maybe a few of us, but if nobody does it, things will be a mess. So it's easy for us to look down on someone who is willing to serve in those ways and say, well, that's not all that important. You know, Paul's picture of the, the, uh, the hand 
or the eye saying to the foot, we don't really need you. The point is, all of us are needed in the body of Christ. All of us can serve in a variety of ways. So we need to use those spiritual gifts. We need to minister in humble service to one another. There are a bunch of passages in the New Testament that have that phrase, one another. Love one another, serve for one another, pray for, serve one another, pray for one another. All of these, and a, a significant portion of them, are characterized by this idea of love. And as we look through the New Testament and see the ways that we can minister to each other, are we actually doing those things? Because it's one thing to know that I ought to serve other people. It's another thing to actually do it. It's one thing to know that I ought to pray for other people. It's another thing to actually do it. And again, part of transitioning from this stage of spiritual maturity to the next stage of spiritual maturity is starting to do the things that we know. And like I said at the beginning, there will be some inconsistency in the degree to which we are developed in each of these areas. It's just a fact of life. But all of these should be increasing over time. Learning about the family. What should that lead to? That should lead to parents raising a godly family, children being a part of a godly family. Setting right priorities that God comes first in the family. Structuring our homes in a godly way. And we see the examples there of the relationships between husbands and wives. In Ephesians 5, 33, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. And certainly add Ephesians 6 about the relationship between parents and kids and kids to parents of obedience and teaching. And so as we learn about whatever the topic is, a mark of maturity is moving beyond just knowing the facts to applying it and doing it in our lives. As you mature, as you move out of the stage of being a youth to being a mature adult, the test for this, I think, is, am I doing what I know? And I will admit that the line between these two things is not precisely clear-cut. Like I said, we may be really far ahead in one area, and not as far ahead in another area. And so there's some areas of our Christian life where we may be more like a youth, and other areas of our Christian life where we're more mature. Our goal should be continue to bring those areas up where we're not, continue to work to apply the truth that we know. What is the next step if you've reached a measure of spiritual maturity? We need to pass on truth, practice discernment, provide an example. Why do I say these things? We need to pass on truth. And we say, well, pastors ought to do this. Yes. First Tim or 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, Paul said to Timothy, the things that you have heard of me commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So you have Paul, then you have Timothy, then you have faithful men, and then you have the ones that they are teaching, with the implication that this process keeps taking place. And so pastors and leaders and churches need to do this. But so that we don't think that it's solely the responsibility of the pastor to do this, Titus 2 urges us that it's the job of every mature member. Turn over there with me if you would, because I think this is, this is important for us to, to think about. I think sometimes we have the, the idea in the church that, okay, I show up, okay, I've started... I've started doing ministry for other people. I've started putting in practice the things that I know. I can just sort of rest because I've arrived. But Paul's point would be, you have a responsibility to pass on truth to others in the church. 
He says this specifically initially to Tim, uh, Titus in chapter 2. He says, As for you, speak things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. So to clarify, Paul says to Titus, Speak things that are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he says, What are older men supposed to be like? These are supposed to be characteristics that characterize older men. He says in verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Why? So that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Now, does he specifically say older men are to teach younger men? No, but we see that pattern throughout Scripture. He does specifically say older women are to teach younger women. And so every mature believer is shown to be mature when they are at this point that they are teaching truth to other people. We'll come to how they do that by providing an example, but at the very least, there ought to be a willingness of those who have increased in maturity by God's grace to be sharing that with those who are younger and or less mature, sometimes both, in the congregation. Men teaching men, women teaching women, uh, parents teaching children. This needs to be taken place because it's not enough for us to just no truth. It's not enough for us to just do truth. We are to be spurring each other on to also be progressing in spiritual maturity. Because if we don't do this, what happens? The truth dies with us. If a church only grows older, which is a fact of life, and we do not pass on truth, we will not accomplish what God wants us to accomplish. And certainly there is an element to which we cannot control this process. There's a degree to which we cannot always control this process. We can pour out our hearts and souls and be an example and teach and train and, and do our best. And sometimes people will not listen. But does that mean that we stop trying? Does that mean that the process has failed and we should just throw it out? No. This is what we're supposed to be striving towards. So not only should we pass on truth, connected with this I would say, I don't think that this is a requirement for every person in the church, but I think that this becomes the group from which pastors, ch church leaders, missionaries, and so forth comes from. Ideally, it should be people who are reaching these levels of maturity and are ready to pass on truth to other people. Why is this important? Because if you have a pastor or a missionary who's not doing the things that they're telling everyone else to do, it's going to start to ring hollow pretty quickly. And even as I say this, this is an admonition to me to live up to the things that God expects of all of us. But just because God expects it of pastors or of teachers or whoever doesn't mean that all of us shouldn't be striving to live up to the things that God expects us to do. 
So pass on truth. Practice discernment. Why do I say that? Well, in Hebrews uh, 5, part of the, the passage, verse 14, ended with, those by reason of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. What's a mark of maturity? You've practiced what is good long enough that you know the difference between good and evil. And so that's something that we should be striving toward. This is a concern for me as I think about different things that sometimes I hear people say. I'm not speaking specifically in our church, just generally out in the world. People who are older believers, uh, for example, who I look up to and I respect, and sometimes they will, um, they will quote someone who's a heretic on Facebook or Twitter or something like that or just in passing, or they will uh, make some comment that sort of takes you back and you say, all of us have room to grow. My point in saying this is, discernment is something all of us have to work at. Discernment is something that doesn't come automatically. 1 Thessalonians 5 encouraged us that it's something that we should test every spirit, hold fast to what's good, turn away from every form of evil. So all of us are called to do this, but hopefully we're getting better at doing this over time. Some of this is a function of knowledge. If I don't know that that person is a heretic, I'm not going to know any better than to quote them. If I don't know how this truth fits with that truth, I may say things that aren't the best way to say it. And so discernment takes practice. It takes work. It takes time. But then also, connected with, but slightly different from passing on truth, the passing on truth has somewhat more of an element of instruction. In other words, here's a truth. I'm going to teach it to you. And sometimes in our minds, we think class, we think uh, seminar, we think workshop, we think reading a book, we think those sorts of things. And those are good. But there also needs to be the idea of modeling. Why did I say that? There's a bunch of passages there. We won't turn to all of them, but I'd encourage you to read them later where essentially this is the idea. Here's an example of someone who's following Christ. You can see how to follow Christ by watching that person's life. Will it be perfect? No. Paul said, to the extent that I follow Christ, follow me. He admitted that he wasn't perfect. He said, I haven't arrived. I'm going to keep running my race. None of us are perfect, but we should be getting to a point that other people can look at our lives and say, that's someone I want to be like. That's someone who illustrates this thing about who Jesus is, about what God is teaching in his word that I can follow. I would say that this is required of pastors and those who would lead in the church. And again, this is convicting for me to think about, but it is a goal for every member that we would be at a point where we can be a spiritual example to other people in the church. This has to continue. We have to, in an ongoing way, set examples for those who come behind us, practice discernment, pass on truth. And so as you think about your Christian life and you look through all these things that we've talked about, where are you? If you've never trusted Christ, if you say, I don't know if I've really believed the gospel, how do, how would I, why would you question that? Well, I'm not sure that I believe in Jesus as the focus, the object of my faith. I'm not sure that I really love God's people or love God by obeying him. I'm not sure that I really hate sin. Then the thing that you need to do is to say, I need to trust in Jesus. 
You say, I have trusted in Jesus. What's your next step? Get baptized? Join the church. Start learning who God is through his word and talking to him in prayer. That's the next step for you. You say, okay, I've done those things. What's the next thing for me? As you learn truth, start to do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a really hard one to put into practice, but it's something that God calls us to do. Children, obey your parents. You hear the truth. Maybe you memorize it in Sunday school. Now you've got to do it. Husbands, love your wives. Same sort of thing. Um, encourage one another in the church. Are we doing that? As we know truth, we need to put it into practice. And then as we continue to grow in Christ, we ought to get to a point where we're not just knowing truth for ourselves, not just doing it in our own lives, but coming alongside other people and saying, here's how to do it. Keep striving at it. Here's what God wants you to do. Coming alongside other people and saying, hey, I don't think that's true. Exercising discernment. Here's what God says instead. Providing an example for people, not that we'll ever be perfect, not that we'll ever have arrived before we are in God's presence, but being an example that people can look up to and say, I want to be like that person because they are following Christ. Are we taking the next step toward maturity? This is what comes after evangelism. This is what God calls all of us to in the church. Let's pray. Lord, as we looked at all of these truths together, there's so much more that we could look at from your word, but hopefully this brief look at these things has illustrated the idea that you want us to grow up in Christ, that we ought to desire your word intensely so that we might grow to be more like Christ through knowing the word better. Lord, help us not to be those that the author of Hebrews criticized, rebuked, because they had had a lot of time of hearing the truth and knowing the truth, but they weren't obeying it. They should have been ready to teach others and to exercise discernment, but they hadn't been practicing and they hadn't been living in such a way to be an example, to be a model for others in the church body. Lord, I pray that you would help that not to be true of us. Lord, we recognize that we are not perfect. We all have room to grow in many areas, and yet, Lord, help us to be together, striving to grow in maturity. Lord, you have saved us, not so that we stay exactly as we are at the point of salvation, but so that we might be holy. This is something that we are all in together, and you have designed the church to be a place that will make this happen. So, Lord, help us to... Uh, put forth the effort to rely on the power of your spirit to accomplish uh, growth in our church body to bring you honor and glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.